sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello and how's it, sports fans? This is Moving the Needle podcast. If you're new to the show, well, I'm Andrew Nietling, and normally I'm interviewing sort of top riders in the mountain bike industry or sports stars that I maybe am fans of, sports psychologists, and maybe anyone else that you guys want me to interview. I'm, I'm really open to that. But I've got a very good friend of mine, Mr. Miles Kelsey of Bike Network in South Africa. He is a former Masters World Champion downhill rider. He has about 45 million years of mountain biking, road, track cycling, you name it, experience. He is just a super fan of the sport, but an incredibly talented coach as well, as well as journalist. He wears quite a few hats in the industry. And we thought, since we get asked quite a lot on the trails for maybe tips, help, or what's going on with a certain rider out there, or what, how do I set up my suspension, because we just unfortunately have a lot of experience, we thought we'd try a new show, a new style of uh, episodes, what do you think of Needles and Miles' world of MTB? Miles, should we call it that? Um, needles, hello. Hello, listeners. Um, I say, hell yeah, why not? I like it. Yeah, well, if you've got any other suggestions, direct messages. And as we'll get into the show, we've definitely got some cool listener questions coming up. But um, yeah, we thought it'd be a cool opportunity to take what we often chat about. We call it bench racing, sometimes about the World Cups or about a certain rider's struggles out there, or how can the everyday rider, whether he's new to the sport or advanced, how can he improve? Because we've obviously been lucky enough to race. We've been at all these events. We chat to a lot of pros. We kind of see their little tips and secrets. i got a new one about training in summer as well, a few miles. So um, that's kind of where we're going to go with it. I think, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, there's, um, I have been doing it not quite 45 million years, but I have been doing it for some time. And I think that uh, what I see now is there's so many new people coming into the sport. There's so many new riders, um, whether they're riding trail, riding e-bikes, riding downhill, riding XC, and there's such a need for information. So um, I think that the way people consume content these days is they find a channel that they like and or find a few channels that they like, and they just stick to those channels. So um, they kind of sometimes can uh, miss out on info that might that might be golden to them, might be of use to them. So I think uh, I think you've got a great platform, yeah. And I think World of MTB is a good name. It actually helps us. Uh, we can address anything, any questions, or uh, and address those needs of all the newbies coming into the sport and also the experienced riders because. I think you can agree with me. You never stop learning in this game. You never ever stop learning. So uh, let's let's uh, let's update everyone. Let's feed everyone the info that they need to improve. Yeah, and let's give a brief, accurate uh, history of of you. Um, you've definitely helped me with the bench racing ones. But how many years has it been since you? Uh, let's maybe call it pick up a bike and race. I know it was on the BMX side. I mean, you have a lot of experience. I'm not trying to give away your full age. First, uh, my full age, <laughs> that's a big number. My first first, uh, first bit of bike racing was in the 70s, uh, late 70s BMX racing in uh, Minar's hometown of Peter Maritzburg. I think the year was 78 or 79. Um, and I've got some pics of that somewhere. I'll put some up on my Instagram feed. But yeah, those were, those were the early days. So that's... Um, well over four decades of bike racing and from BMX I moved into road and then um, mountain biking came about. Uh, there were some mountain bikes in South Africa in the mid 80s and I was one of the first to get one but none of my friends were buying them. They all wanted to carry on racing on the track. So I sold my first mountain bike, bought a track bike, continued racing on the road and track and then a couple seasons later, mountain biking started to gain popularity, and then I then I um, dived right in, and I think been racing mountain bikes, all kinds of mountain bikes, since about eighty eight, eighty nine, something like that. And you know, in those early days, we did everything. We did cross country, we did 
downhill, we did uphill, we did slalom, we did foot up trials, we did big loop XC, short loop XC. Um, in those early days of racing, there were lots of different formats around and lots of, um, and there were lots of fun. There was lots of fun to be had at the South African nationals. So, um, yeah. And, uh, I kind of went deep into the XC a bit in the nineties. And then from mid nineties, I just kind of decided that there was too much training involved with that. And then I just went deep dive. So I think like deep dive into downhill. So I think, and I've got like over 20 years of well over 20 years of downhill racing experience. Yeah. And, and 40 years in total. So we're pretty similar there on the, the gravity side. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope the listeners out there, a lot of them are mountain bikers, some of them are not. And uh, I kind of wanted to share. So for me, I'm very lucky. I get to ride basically all the time. Sometimes it's with some of the world's best riders. I'm, I'm still able to ride with them, try keep up with them. But one of my best rides was actually with the guys from the shop here at home. And uh, the youngster's name is Pitt, and he's a wizard in the workshop. But what was cool was, there was no goal, you know, normally we're riding, we're trying to go faster, we're trying to be smooth, we're trying to be this. And he was in front of me and he was just doing his utmost best to literally slide and drift in every turn down the bottom of the trails, quite loose dirt in these berms. And uh, I couldn't help but follow suit. You know, normally me, my racer background is, okay, set up nicely for the turn, get your braking done, dive in, carry good exit speed. And the opposite just happened. It was like infectious. I was watching him and I was just, I was giggling and I was like, where's my GoPro? Because he was not carrying great speed, but he was just having a great time on the bike. And I think as racers and, and some guys that are maybe aspiring to do marathon racing and, and they, you know, they want to get better at the sport. They, everyone's kind of trying to impress their mate or trying to get a better Strava time. And I think sometimes even at the level where you're not racing, you forget that two wheels are there to sort of have fun. You know, when we were kids, what did we do? We dragged a piece of wood outside, we put a brick under it, and then we try to catch our first air. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, there was no genre of riding. There was just two wheels, and how do we put a smile on our face? So I kind of wanted to share that, and it, it, I really appreciated that uh, Pitt was forcing me, you know, to act young again, to act like, hey, it doesn't really matter if you get the turn perfect or not. But um, so I wanted to share that with you, Miles, and, and kind of that's – Maybe tie into cool like what was your favorite memory on the bike in the last little bit, considering you've got so many. Uh, I think fresh in my mind is um, joining Yolanda Neff, uh, you and Yolanda Neff um, earlier this year, or was it late last year? I can't quite remember, but um, that was an eye opener. I mean, I've I'm I'm, a, I'm just a big fan of all things bike, and especially mountain bike, World Cup racing, and. Uh, you know, I've been to World Cups. I've raced some World Cups, most, but in the latter years, mostly raced Masters, downhill World Champs. But um, being on the side of the track watching World Cup riders um, is is one thing. But actually following someone like Yolanda Neff down a trail is actually quite incredible. Um, for me, it was um, it was a complete eye opener. I always thought Rob Warner made you know kind of a big deal about how skilled the top XC riders are. And, um, you know, I've, as I said, I've been and I've watched a couple of the XC races, but when you follow these top World Cup races down a trail that, you, you know, a, a trail that I've ridden a, quite a few times, and you see, like, this particular trail is your downhill track at Helderberg Trails behind your shop there, and um, – she didn't know the trail. She was following you. I mean, you know the story, but for the listeners, Yolanda didn't know the trail. She was riding it completely blind. Um, she's out in South Africa for some heat training and base training and off-season. She spent like five, six weeks here. And um, she's riding these this downhill track that we've raced, uh, local downhill races on many times. She's riding it blind, following Andrew in the dust. Andrew's on a spark with 130 and 120 and... Andrew knows the trail well, so he's booming everything and, and um, uh, running racing lines. And uh, he's not going slow. And uh, Yolanda Neff is behind him on a 100-mil fork, 60-mil rear, super caliber, you know, the bike, a similar bike to the one she won Olympics on. And, you know, basically it's not a trail bike. It's not a downhill bike. It's an it's a unapologetically race bike. And 
Yolanda's sticking on Andrew's wheel for 10 minutes of, of really fast technical trails. And I was following Yolanda and actually at one stage, I remember thinking, I was on a 120 bike, so, and I remember thinking, I'm really going to have to push it here and risk a little bit to stay on this wheel. And not that, for me, what was surprising is how skilled Yolanda is. And also we rode with some of the other XC uh, team, the Swiss XC team that were out here. And, and also, they also surprised me. But what was really surprising is, is Yolanda's, um, her skill, her ability to read the terrain that she doesn't know. And her last-minute decision-making, she was running inside lines, over the edges, through the rocks. Um, and when she chose a line, she committed to it. And she had some moments, but she never just hit the brakes. And like, if I was on a 100-mil fork, I would have hit the brakes and skidded over the berm. But she just, like, she just nailed it. She nailed it the whole way down, never uncleated, and never really lost Andrew's will. And it was... I mean, I've, I've ridden with a lot of people in, through my time, and I've been fortunate enough to, to ride with some really, really experienced riders. Andrew, you're one of them. Minar's another one. And, and uh, this has to be my favorite ride. If you ask me what my fav most recent favorite ride is, this has to be it, because I was just blown away by, by her skill and by her commitment. And at the bottom of the trail, I actually said to Yolanda, like, I think you've, you may have been watching one too many Sam Hill videos because you're just inside lining all the turns and you just, you're just carrying so much speed. It's ridiculous. And we had a good laugh about it. But for me, it was a big eye-opener. Yeah, that was a, that was a cool day. Um, it was pretty tough hanging up the hill considering they were just doing a recovery ride that day. So a lot of people did ask me about that ride and what it was like um, you know, fitness-wise and, and all that, cardio side. Uh, and let's not beat around the bush. Um, they are just incredible, you know, training machines and very fit. And that was just a recovery ride. So we always kind of knew that was going to be something that impressed everyone, right? But you're right. Um, the people, when they watched the YouTube video of me following her and, and some people were asking, I said, guys, the thing that impresses probably all of us more than anything is you're not expecting the sheer speed they have on the downhills considering – they're on those very small travel bikes. Oh, plus the tires are the fast rolling, horrendous XE lap racing tires. Like there's barely any tread. And our trails in the summer, Brendan was mentioning, like it takes a while to get used to. It's very slippery. It's very dry. It's quite loose. You know, it's a bit marbly. Um, so that that was a cool ride, wasn't it? And uh, mate, did you see one of the funny comments on a YouTube video? So that when we did the YouTube video, it was her first run that day. So she'd seen some of the track. And then I said, well, you go in front. I'll just, you know, tell you if there's an issue or something. And it was classic keyboard warrior. It was like, hey, why are you shouting at you landed? What to do, you dumbass? Or whatever the comment was. And I, at first, of course. At first I was like, oh, it's a keyboard warrior. And then I was like, this is one of the most hilarious comments. It just made me laugh. Like everyone said, oh, don't bite. Don't react. Don't reply. I said, no, I have to. This is just one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Like, what do you think I'm doing? I'm trying to keep her safe because on my watch, if she crashes, I'm probably going to get a call from the team manager or the Swiss national team. Like, what were you doing? Why didn't you tell her to watch out for the gap jump? So that was definitely one of the classic keyboard warrior moments in the last month or two, which, which happens, which I appreciate. I think it was hilarious. It made for good humor. Yeah, I mean, that's why she kind of reached out because you guys have been mates from World Cup Racing for years and she said, I want to ride some different trails, right? She had a recovery ride to do and she wanted to ride something different for that day. And um, I think, like, I, I, I saw the speed. I mean, I was behind you when you were filming that and I saw the speed you guys were going at and I, I wanted you to shout more. I wanted you to warn her more. I was like... Andrew, there's a big drop coming. Like, do something, <laughs> you know, because I also didn't want her to hurt herself. But, yeah, incredible, incredible day, incredible athlete. What a climbing weapon. And, yeah, she was on those 2.2-inch, fast-rolling, sketchy XC tires. And she had XC pressures in her fork and in her tires. Everything was set up for XC. So, 
I think uh, she was running deep in her travel and but it's almost it back to it's almost back to my story because she is um, trying to sort of stay off social media a bit more. I think it's been quite overwhelming if I was to guess, you know, winning the world champs and getting a lot of requests for interviews and you know, obviously sponsors are are definitely looking for that side of it as well. But you can see what she got out of that ride. It was somewhere new. We have met, uh, we were on Giant together, and uh, she does love riding her bike, almost just over-eager at points, and, and she's had some crashes. But it was cool to see her, you know, in the off-season mode, and yes, she's doing her training, and, and let's be honest, it gets pretty mundane. It's hard work, with, crazy hard work. So it's awesome to see them even focus on, okay, I'm going to go out, I'm going to ride, I'm going to have fun, I'm going to drift some turns. So I think that was a... That was a really fun ride for me. So that'll probably be in my top two in the last little bit as well. Yeah, and I think like at her level now, um, she's, I mean, she's on her top of her game now. She's won everything. She's won the Swiss title. She's won Worlds. She's won European title and now Olympics. And she's won many World Cups. So it's kind of like she's at, she's at the top of her game right now. So I think, you know, she's earned the right to, enjoy her riding now more she knows how to prepare she's and she's got the backing of um sponsors and partners who obviously buy into her uh thinking that she wants to do less on media less interviews less on social media but just enjoy her riding more and um i say all, all kudos to her complete credit to her and um I actually bumped into her in one of the stores just before she left. Uh, her dad finally made it out, and they were doing some extra riding. And um, she's just a fantastic human being. Hey? She's just she's just an incredible bike rider. She's just so friendly, so bubbly. And um, I asked her, so have you had a good time, and are you coming back to South Africa? And she said, um, absolutely super, super, super keen. I just need to convince Luca. So... Yeah, shout out. Let's get some DMs into Lucas Shaw's direct message on Instagram or something and tell him how much he's missing out in South Africa. And I'm going to bully him when I see him at Lords. Brendan's been coming each year. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, I think the dollar goes far here. The, there's good, there's good sun, there's sunshine almost every day here in uh, December, Jan time. Great uh, couple of downhill tracks. There's a strong downhill community for Luca to ride with. There's shuttling almost, you know, every weekend, official shuttle days, but there's also a lot of private stuff going on. And uh, I think Luca would have, a, it would be a good block for him, good training block. Yeah, I'm uh, really thankful. Obviously, I mean, I'm very biased to South Africa and it was my off-season base, but it is definitely one of the spots that can work for off-season training. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's really easy to see that it worked for Matt Walker, won a World Cup title, didn't he? And he's been coming to South Africa in the off season, so we'll just we'll just leave it there. I mean, the proof is in the pudding there. Absolutely. You know, it seems to yeah, work you, for you, Greg as well. But Greg you know, well. completely. I mean, you've probably had it lucky. You didn't need to travel away from home in the off season, so. No, and that's a tough thing. I, I do understand it. We're, we're teasing, but you must remember these riders, you know, once the season kicks off, plus they've done the hard training work. I mean, you're, you're on the road. You're out of a bag for six months of the year or, or longer sometimes with team camps. And yes, some riders get to go home. But, you know, it's like a week or two at a time. And, yeah, you see your family, you switch off. It, it does feel good, but your mind is on racing. So your mind is on the next training session. Your mind is on you know, the next race or building up to Worlds or whatever you've gone home for to prepare for. So in the off-season, obviously all the riders want to be in their own bed. So it's pretty understandable that people are hesitant to travel. Um, but yeah, if you want to get out of sort of bad weather and, and those sort of things, it is, well, as we know, it's a, it's a good place to be. So... We want to hear from everybody. We've had some awesome questions sent through on uh, Miles' uh, Instagram as well as uh, Bike Network Instagram as well as my personal one. So we will get to those, but we just want to urge you guys, this show is kind of a brainchild of you guys because Miles and I will have a coffee or a beer after a ride and 
and we'll chat about this podcast or challenges he sees with guys because um, he does a lot of training with all sorts of levels of riders. I've also helped some youngsters and and I'm actually going to go to Lords and and sort of coach on the side, even though those are the best athletes in the world. Everyone's looking for that sort of marginal gain or or a second set of eyes to see what they're doing. And it got me thinking to um, how to help someone improve. Now, everyone is individual. Everyone has certain things they should work on in technique. But I think what I've seen in other sports and what I've learned from myself, um, especially if you don't have that much time to ride, is this thing called block practice versus sort of riding, real practice. And when I say block practice, that's in a golf terms, that would be hitting your 7-9 over and over until you've got the mechanical technique to hit that shot. And then from there, you go onto the course. Now in riding, we don't really have a textbook on how to get better at riding. But it made me think, how did I get good at dirt jumping? Well, I didn't go to a million sets of jumps in the beginning. I went to my local jump spot. We built the jumps ourselves. And I just rode them over and over and over. Same set of jumps. Same as turns, same as downhill. Sometimes we only had one track. So I rode that over and over. And when there wasn't uh, my mom or my dad to shuttle, we would go and hike. And, you know, we'd do like a 20-second trail. And we push up, do it again, push it. So repetition. And I think sometimes on all levels, we miss the repetition to build a skill set and a feeling. And then once you've got that feeling and that confidence, then you take it to all sorts of other trails, which is the next step and which is really critical as well. So I was wondering your thoughts on if you think maybe a lot of us um, and riders out there could benefit from that if they're trying to take their riding to the next level. A hundred percent. I think um, I think that's uh, as as a kid you just and as a as a teen and then like when you've got a lot of time when you're a student you you've got the time to go out there and session and repeat trails and I think there's so much value in that. I see with athletes I work with and and riders that I'm coaching I see that a lot of them are pushed for time you know married with kids and running their own business and. And um, they want to kind of like half combine their skill session with, you know, 20 Ks. And did I also get like 600 meters elevation in? And that, um, I have to convince them and coach them into the state of mind where we're just working skills today. You know, turn your GPS unit off. We're going to session. We're going to work turns. We're going to work drop-offs. We're going to work jumps, whatever it is for that day. And we're going to repeat and repeat and repeat. And um, I completely agree with you. I think there is, those are the days when I have the most gains with the riders that I'm working with is, is when, I, when I get them to switch off from, you know, how, how many Ks did I do or um, how many trails did I ride? Um, it's, it's when I get them to zone in on one section of the trail. Um, and I think it, it's crucial to make time if you want to learn to, if you want to improve and refine your technique, it's crucial to make time for those sessions where you just literally, as you say, hike up, find a 20-second piece of trail, smash it through, try different braking points, try different body position, um, try different gear for the exit of out of the turn, and um, you know, even play around with your suspension setups. Uh, see, see what you know. Turn your rebound a lot slower. Turn it a lot faster, and um, learn you, you i think um there's so much to be learned from repeating a trail repeating a section of a trail um i, I kind of uh i kind of probably do it too much now when i'm riding i mean i'm not racing seriously at all i do a couple fun enduros and and downhill races and stuff but um i'm generally people that know me well know that, that i always ride i've got a few trails which are my favorite trails and i ride them over and over again and I think it's because, like I said earlier, you never stop learning in this game. And I kept, I use those days and those trails to keep refining bike setup and my opinion on equipment and uh, assessing how my body feels. So do I need more fit off the bike fitness training? And also just, just you know, these bikes are different these days, you know, and, and every two, three years bikes are updated and uh, you have to ride them a little bit different. So I have a lot of fun doing it, and, and, and I think you're right. I think more people would gain 
so much if they did it more often. Yeah, and let's let's break it down. I mean, that'll be sort of the one topic of what we've seen. Maybe we can help everyone improve. It doesn't matter what level you are, because when I was, um, you know, focusing on World Cups, I would go testing or whatever it may be. And I'd always say, can we test on a shorter track, say a minute and a half? Because then I can isolate where the challenge was or what the bike was doing. So that was testing. But what it also did was I would do repetition. I'd get more confident. I'd get more good feeling on the bike. And then once I was happy, I said, cool, I feel good on the bike. Times are looking good. Then I can take that feeling and I could take it to any other track. And I would already feel better. If I was to hop from track to track to track when I was testing, I don't know if it's the suspension. I don't know if it's my technique. I don't know what's going on. Is it the track that's challenging? But once I did it over and over and over, then I could isolate. Okay, this is a very tricky turn. It doesn't matter where I break. This turn, you know, it's got my name. Cool. I've got to go a bit slower, whatever it is. And then it made me think, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to a lot of new guys riding and it's awesome. And I mean, the questions and, and I can just see they're like, I want to get better. I want to get better. And yes, you have to ride. Like I'm unfortunately saying, well, you have to ride more. Okay. But then let's try expedite that process because if you go ride and you climb up for 40 minutes and you ride one trail that's five minutes long and you get to the bottom and I say, cool, how did you feel? Well, I don't know. I blew through that turn and then I, I, I think I overbraked in that turn and then I almost went over the bars in that rock section. You don't really know why because you've only done it once. You don't know what was your breaking off? Was your, or were your eyes, were you not looking at the correct thing? Um, was your body position totally off like you said? You know, so then I'll say, cool, why don't we go to a 30-second section with a few turns? Let's do it over and over. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to say your goal is to look out the turn. And then what does that do? And then the next one, I say your goal is to break before the turn. What does your body feel like? What does your bike feel like? Did you feel when you braked really early, did you feel you kind of got catapulted out the turn? Well, that's the feeling we're trying to recreate. And you almost have to coach yourself. I can tell you what to do. But with repetition, I think you internalize it and you create your own solution for it. So that's what I think like you've noticed is you have to force the guys to say, let's, you know, let's do it over. And, and when I coach as well, I say, cool, we're going to focus on your heels in this turn and he'll do it once. And I said, try it again. And then you'll go, okay, I've got it. Let's move on. I said, well, <laughs> let's try it again because hopefully it be becomes subconscious if your muscle memory does it over and over. Yeah, completely. Uh, repetition is key. Uh, I completely agree. And I think that I use the word safe speed when I'm coaching. And I, and I always I say that safe speed comes from micro-analyzing the trail. So you, you learn the braking bumps, you learn the edges, and you learn where that exit point of the turn is, where you can release the brakes and carry that exit speed. So when you micro-analyze things, you can go faster and still be safe. And it's difficult to do that on a long piece of trail. So like you say, yeah, short, pick a, I think the main tip is pick a short piece of trail that's got a lot of features in it and hopefully an easy pedal round or an easy push up the side of it. And um, like spend some time walking it and micro-analyzing things, looking for spots where there's better traction, looking for edges you can pump for speed and, and that kind of stuff. And then the other thing is also to, um, I, I ask riders to slow down a little bit um, to give yourself the bandwidth to focus on the technique. And then I give them two, like you said, think of your heels now. I, I do the same thing, and I think it really works. I, I say, just think of this and this. I give them one or two things to think about. So I say, kind of like, forget about those 15-minute YouTube videos you've watched where uh, 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 probably good skills coaches, but you know, there's, there's a lot of details, and you get to the end of a 15-minute skills edit, and you kind of probably got analysis paralysis and too much data in your head. So I, I ask riders, slow down a little bit, give yourself bandwidth, and just focus on one or two things. Now focus on breaking early, setting up wide, um, and then I get them to get that right. And then I can, then, then you know you move on to the next thing, like you said, looking through the turn. And um, I, th I think the key is, is, is that technique must be worked on before trying to go fast. I see too many guys just blowing up stuff, trying to go too fast too soon. And I think that's where all kinds of troubles come from. 
That's a really um, interesting point, and I that is a challenge with YouTube and how much content there is. We're not saying there shouldn't be the content. We're not saying it's great content. I think everyone is yeah, obviously sure. maybe looking for the quick fix because everyone, you know, a lot of uh, maybe this listener base, our friends. Uh, the older you get, the more chance you've got a family. You you have less time, but you love riding, or or you're new to riding and you just can't wait to get out there. And, we all sort of self-diagnose, so you go and you click on the YouTube and how to corner because you now feel like you're struggling with corner. There's a few things there. Number one, that issue they're solving might not be what you're making the mistake with. And unfortunately, even if it is, you have to go to the corner and you need to do it over and over and figure out your feeling. How do you solve this corner? How do you solve getting the bike at the angle you wish you had in that YouTube video? Does that mean that you have to feel your hips are rotated more? You know, you've got to just do it over. And so, I promise you, it's an, a magical thing. It happened to me on snowboarding. It took me three days. But on the third day on the snowboard trip, I can remember it. Something clicked. It, I wasn't in my head. I wasn't, you know, over, you know, I wasn't totally thinking technique. I was just doing repetition. And, you know, my body subconsciously figured it out for me, which is a beautiful thing about learning as well. When you do the repetition side. Yes, I think, yeah, I mean, I've done some YouTube edits on skills and they're difficult to package together to, as you say, um, appeal and be correct advice for every rider on every trail in every kind of scenario because every corner is different. So they're really difficult to get to put together and then they, tend, they can end up being really long with too much data. So it's kind of like I think the best advice is to find find some edits, find find a source of skills advice or a few sources of skills advice that work for you. But don't, like Andrew says, don't um, spend too many hours uh, watching every single skills edit out there because you'll end up with too much data in your head and then you won't develop that feel. You'll always be overthinking stuff. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, no, no, I think that's great. And uh, I, I think we're just kind of hoping everyone will take this opportunity to have fun with it and, and make it as like a challenge to yourself that maybe don't go ride for two hours, but go play on some turns. And you can have a hell of a lot of time. One of the greatest downers of all time, when he was bored or uh, didn't have much riding to do that day, he would go out and it was called the Cuddy Track. And the Australians are famous for this in the downhill circuit. And they would ride and do turns on flat ground so many times that they would wear like a foot deep rut in the ground and they would do it over and over and over and over and how good were they at turning so if they can do a flat turn well pretty sure they'll do a berm pretty well um, and then once you've got that feeling cool take it to as many trails as you want see if you can recreate that feeling you say you know what i feel more confident in tours now and the same can be for rocks and, and drops and and i like what you said and uh yeah, we want to hear from you if that's something you want us to start solving is like a an aspect of riding or whatever you want to improve. And maybe um I've I've, yeah. uh, I've got another I've got another point here just on learning from the pros and uh, I think um, That's a good subject line good for this segment of the episode. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, you solved write that. that write that down. Write that yeah. down. I think uh, learning from the pros is like I think uh, watching World Cup riders and watching racing um, it, it's important to understand that the pros have microanalyzed and have calculated every single turn and every single inch of the track and that they're not bombing down out of control and, well, let's just boost this and see what happens. So there's, that's, that's, the, that's the fastest way to, um, to the emergency ward at, at the hospital. And, I, and I, I'd like to encourage as many listeners as possible to to take time to stop and inspect um, obstacles. And just because your mate ahead of you boosted something on a blind trail that you haven't maybe ridden, doesn't mean that you should just boost it, you know. I mean, there, there can be a certain amount of thrill in that, but, um, you know, a couple couple decades of riding, often there's, there's a problem that comes with that. You know, maybe you didn't know that there's a massive gap or there's a hole or you have to jump to the right or if it's a hip to the left or whatever. So... I'm a big fan of stopping to inspect stuff. Um, that way you, you, you know what speed you're going to need to hit an obstacle at. You know where you need to land. And, uh, 
you know, it's it's just far safer. And that's what the pros do all the time. There's the World Cup riders seldom just send it down a track, you know, not knowing what's coming up. And I think um No, they never people... they they never do. I think it's a dangerous place to watch the pros. I mean, they've have two, three days of practice. They're riding their bikes every day. So it's seldom that they are that out of control. That is all a planned, executed run happening at a World Cup level. So to compare to that is a challenge because they've ridden one track for three days, you know. Yeah, and I think if you like have done, say, snowboarding or skiing or something, it might be part of your makeup just to bomb down stuff. But um, realize in mountain biking that there's trees. We've got trees on the side of the track and, and rocks. And, and uh, the dirt we may be is going hot. Lots and the dirt is hard. You know, we may be going slower than um, the Olympic skiers in Beijing, but, you know, when we hit a tree, we stop. You know, they, they don't hit trees. They've got catch fencing and things. So um, take it easy out there, you know. Um, take it easy. Rather do one, one sighting run and then start building your speed and having fun. Yeah, and I think you just enjoy, enjoy the ride. Should we uh, fire into some listener questions? We've been harping on enough that we had some and that we want more. Cool. Let's, um, yeah, guys, I appreciate it. I might not uh, give you a shout out, but if it was one of your questions, thanks so much. Um, where are we going to go? <laughs> I was wondering where to start this. I almost started with quite a contentious issue, but I won't. Nutrition ideas post big ride when you're hungry as F, but want to eat healthy. Well, the short answer is eat healthy, but the longer answer is prepare for it. If you know you're going on a ride, maybe prepare a snack or two the day before. If it's an afternoon ride, you've maybe got an opportunity to make a choice at the supermarket. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think that's key, guys. I mean, uh, the more you ride and the more healthy you eat, the better you're going to ride, the better you're going to feel the next day. Recovery is, is really, really uh, critical, I think. And it's that first, not a nutritionist, and I'm not your nutritionist, and Miles will jump in because he's got even more experience than me. But for me, the first half an hour after a ride, I wanted to get some sort of recovery drink in or at least a very good protein and a healthy carb, which is, you know, a sweet potato, potato, not rich sugars and shit. So I, I think if you prepare better the day before with a very healthy snack bar or, you know, a whole wheat sandwich or whatever that you know you can have straight off the ride, then you're not going to just, you know, drive straight to the gas station get a tin of Coke and a packet of chips. That's just not really the way to do it. Well, we used to do that 30 years ago, but uh, yeah. 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 No, I, I, uh, it's a great question, actually. Um, uh, example, if my ride finishes at home, then uh, my go-to meal, which I'll have with, you know, sort of on arrival, if I'm hungry as hell, which is, I think, what the question was, um, I'll immediately have a little bit of muesli with some yogurt and fruit just to sort of restore the sugar levels and give your give your system some fuel and then so just a small portion and then um then i'll follow that with something more substantial like um a you know leftover fish from last from the night before with some sweet potato or rice um or broccoli or chicken i i try and stay away from the red meats but um you know chicken and and rice a little bit of carbs and some some veggies are a great meal and it's amazing you know you're eating well because after you finished it you after you finished eating you you're not bloated and heavy like you want to go and sleep you feel you actually can feel that you're feeling replenished um, and and you can feel the recovery starting right away yeah and and i think this guy is probably from what i can guess probably similar to me when i don't prepare he might have gone out and he's had a good ride with his mates and they've decided to ride some more. And we all know he hasn't taken a, enough probably food with him. The other idea is, you know, decide what your snack bar is. Go for a healthy one, do a bit of research and take some with you. Because if you snack during the ride, if you end up riding for three hours out on the trails and you've snacked a little bit, you know, I think every hour you should be having a little bit uh, maybe to eat or at least a you know, a drink with a bit of carb, low protein in it. You know, there's lots of brands out there. I'm not going to tell you which one to get. But if you sip on something during the ride, 
and maybe a snack bar halfway through, um, you're probably going to be less hungry as if when you finish. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't go riding without. If I'm going to be out for, for an hour or longer, I always take a bar and a gel, and it's usually more a, a, a date, an oat kind of bar and something more natural. I try and stay away from the too, uh, too, too sugary stuff. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole of where you get your food sourced and stuff like that, but maybe we just do the low-hanging fruit here, for lack of a better word. Um, some fruit is also very good, like you said, to get the sugar back because you you know you need a little bit of sugar that'll start making you feel a little bit human. And he's probably out riding with the lads, and it's not cool to have a snack bar and a proper you know electrolyte drink. But sneak it in your bottle, have a little electrolyte drink. You'll just outride the lads, no problem. So yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, on to another sort of nutrition question. I thought this might pop up. What about doping? Start a discussion. Ooh. <laughs> we, Ooh, we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. Oh, that's lethal. Hey, I mean, how? I mean, how much time have you got? We did say ask us anything. Ask us anything. Oh, that's lethal. I mean, are you asking me? You want me to answer? Go. Well, go. No, go for it. I mean, start a discussion. You can go in any which way. I mean, it's definitely. I mean, I think if you if you look back 50, 60 years in the world of road cycling, it's part and parcel. I'm not picking on road cycling. I ride on the road a lot. I love it. But I, it was just an accepted norm in the European pelotons. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was just what happened. So I think it's a lot cleaner now, fortunately. I think we'd be naive to assume it doesn't happen anymore. But I think it's likely very rare. Or I'd like to think it's likely very rare, put it that way. Um, but having said that, I think that downhill is predominantly a skilled-based sport. And yes, you'll build power with some stuff. Um, but I don't know that that's really going to help you much. And I think the bad karma that comes with it is probably going to hinder you more than the one second you might make on a two-minute race run kind of thing. I don't know. That's just my take on it. And I think it's if it is around in downhill and enduro racing, I think it's extremely rare. Yeah, I think I on, on, the, on the – I've always thought about on the downhill side. And um, I think you'd be naive to, to think that it absolutely hasn't crossed anyone's sort of mental thought process because the salaries and stuff are going up. And I would never say it's, it's – not, I'm not saying it's happening. I'm never saying that it has happened. I'm not saying it will happen. On the downhill side, I just wonder if it's even worth the risk because the risk is reputation in your whole career, right? And the gains, there are gains. I mean, the, I've been told, you know, proper EPO dose, do, do ping and dosing, you can go from not using it to using it and the next uh, power session is 30% more power. And that would equate to having more energy at the bottom of the track. We all know if you're good in the last sector on a gnarly track, last minute, that's going to be that's going to be pretty beneficial. But if you cannot get that bike down the first two three sectors really fast, you're not going to feature anyway, and that you know is less physical in the first minute, the first split. So for me, doesn't seem worth the risk. Um, and I think you've you've given the a very good overview. We all know it exists. We all know it's been there. We all know everyone's trying to clean it up. Um, so I don't really have a viewpoint on someone that did it back in the day or not. It's uh, till you walk a day in someone's shoes. And you just, I'm not saying I would have done it or it's right. But if you worked your whole entire life to get to the Tour de France, let's say, and, and you were really good, and that manager says, what was the saying? Oh, you're a really good Pane Aqua rider. You're a very good bread and water rider. But if you want to stay on this team, you're going to have to take this, this other lunchbox from us. And we're going to pay you five times the amount or whatever these figures were getting thrown around. I mean, it's horrible. If you say morally I'm not going to cheat or dope, you kind of got to go look for another job. You've got to go look for another way to support your family. It's, it's a really horrendous thing that happened in the sport, you know? Yeah. I think like um, 
my perspective on it is that not that I'm soft on dopers. I think it's cheating, and I, I think that it's bad stuff comes from it. But I think that, like in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, it was just a it was known. I mean, you just can YouTube it. There's a lot of stuff about, about what happened in the in that era on the professional road peloton. Um, I think it's I think the road peloton is a lot cleaner than what it was, but the money and the stakes and the gains are just so high. So, yeah, I, just, I, I, I wonder really to what extent it still exists. And, and I think if in cycling as a whole, if there is doping going on, um, I think it's probably more in the endurance side of it, of the sport. Um, and, well, maybe... Maybe track riding. I mean, wow, the gains there must be unreal. But yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be one of those athletes ever put into that situation. What a terrible situation, especially if you're not from, you know, from a wealthy background. And, uh, you know, if you're from a wealthy background, you can say, you know, this career isn't for me. But if, you, if you're, you're feeding mouths at home and you, like you said, your scenario, the boss says to you, we've got an extra lunchbox for you and we're going to pay you more. Wow, what a what a terrible place to be. But I mean, the downside of it these days is so huge because the not for the sport as a whole, but I mean, for the sport of the whole, it's bad. But the sponsors and partners and brands involved and tarnished by by any of that activity is is um, like the fallout is massive. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for the question. Proper humdinger of a question on our first test episode of this but i mean there's the discussion started if you need follow-up questions or something we can try give you a view but it is just a it's just it's a shitty topic you know no one condones no one condones cheating i don't even think lance armstrong himself condones cheating it was just how these crazy and i don't like i said i don't support any of it but we also weren't there and we don't know what was on the line um <laughs> Uh, okay, there is one caveat. You're not allowed to follow. We've started and ended the discussion. Yeah, when are bikes slash riders going to adopt the aero advantage? Yeah, interesting question. I think I've got some firsthand experience back when I was on Trek. We actually went and visited the wind tunnel in San Diego in America that they used um for their road bike development stuff like that so it was super interesting and we actually did the testing um we found out that peaks on a downhill helmet actually wasn't as much of a disadvantage as you think even though i was never going to take it off so there was a petition slash uh, unwritten rule from the downers back in the day to not take the peaks off anymore um Another thing to consider is uh, the riders uh, are getting a lot of support from uh, clothing companies these days, and they don't get a lot of mileage when you're in a skin suit, say, on race day. So it was really the riders taking the sport into their own hands and saying, look, we want to be portrayed as X, Y, Z. We want to look better. We want to look cooler. And from that, sponsors have come into the sport. So... In saying that, there are always times and tracks where a little aero advantage will help. Um, at Canberra, back in Australia, on the downhill side, there was definitely <laughs> some interesting race kits that came down that hill. Uh, last minute, just before the beeps went, people were taking off jerseys, and there was definitely the top off was a skin suit. Uh, go look at some of the top riders. Those pants are so tight. They're basically acting like skin suits. So I think the guys are sneaking that advantage in, but depending on the track and the average speeds, once you start going over, I think it was something like 40Ks an hour, don't quote me, that's when it starts making a big advantage. But slower speeds, it's not as much in the woods and stuff. So it's like a catch-22. If we're all just going to play the game of not being a skin suit and help the sport have a better sort of image, I support that versus everyone chasing the aero advantage. Totally agree with you. And I remember that um, tunnel testing you did. I think you were on the cover of Dirt Magazine a while back when you were. Oh, yeah, I true. I could probably dig that up somewhere. Yeah. For that, for that yeah. testing. So when you were there in that wind tunnel, did they ever um, 
did they put you in a skin suit versus looser clothing and, and look at the results of that? No, because we were we refused to get into a skin suit because we the <laughs> like you know we'd had the under you know the unwritten rule, but we did do um, we pinned the, the jerseys and we saw you know the jerseys versus shorts versus longs. Like I said, the peak versus no peak, just to get some data. And they were doing work, and other teams have as well for um, the bike. Uh, we had sort of fairings on the fork and, you know, designed the down tube. It was a really, it was really cool to be part of that, actually, thinking back on, on how much effort they put in and how prepared we wanted to be for Canberra Worlds in Australia because there was a lot of pedaling. There were some fast sections. There were no trees. Um, we had deep dish um, carbon sort of things for the rims. But all these things in theory in the wind tunnel when you put them into practice on the course not all of them work not all of them work like right. any, it's any got, bit it's of, got to be practical yeah any bit of side wind those rims had we we did one practice run on those rims and they weren't happening again and and all those sort of things so it was like how much abuse were you willing to take from your fellow riders towards how much advantage it was it was a huge advantage you can say what you want to me i was going to take it so it was an interesting time that didn't really catch on, I must say. So it's a great question. I think a little bit of it is still happening. But, uh, you know, skill is such a divider. You know, you can have the fastest aero bike. You still got to get that thing down the hill. Or uh, This one came in a while ago, so I appreciate, and I've just sat on it because I, it was an interesting question that, I've been thinking about a lot. Do you think you need to be a perfectionist to reach the top level of our sport? I know my thoughts, but the the listeners asked you, so you go. <laughs> no, you're doing the smart <laughs> thing. You're gonna smart. hear me, and then you're gonna add to it and just sound like an absolute guru. <laughs> we'll have to flip flop from now on. The new rule is we flip flop who goes first. <laughs> Okay, perfect. I like it. You're like, I totally agree with all your points. And to add this one. <laughs> and then you look like a boss. Okay, so let me go first then. So, and I'll let you go first on my questions. Um, I think the answer is 100%. I think reaching the top is in the details. I think um, it's never one big thing a rider can work on that takes them to the top. The secret is in obsessing over all the small things and in working on all the small things. So I think you absolutely have to be a perfectionist to get there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that it, it would help you and you'd have to manage it. I think the challenge comes with over-analysis and, and getting down on yourself if you're not perfect. So I think this weird you know, feeling or this drive inside you to always be better. So then that is obviously maybe, you know, you can call that a perfectionist. You have to have a drive to be better. But, I mean, is Brendog a perfectionist? I, I don't really know. I just think he's like innately competitive and has fun riding his bike and did a lot of repetition. So it's like a double, I just think it's a double-edged sword. If you're too much of a perfectionist, I think you're going to get to a point of analysis paralysis and, and just never being in a good space and always trying to reinvent the wheel. So I think I agree with you, but it has to be really well managed. Uh, and, and I think, you know, drive, you know, with someone with a chip on their shoulder that has drive, is he a perfectionist, Miles? Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a deep dive. I think, you know, I think the, the the real answer is somewhere in between, for sure. Like you, I think you need to pay attention to stuff, but then once race day comes, you've got to have your strategy and just execute, you know. So you think it through to a point and then you decide, okay, I'm happy with where I am now for this event, execute, and then have a party and then regroup and then decide whether you need to do more work or what you need to work on, give it some thought, give it some attention, and then go to the next race and, and just focus on the race itself. So yeah. I think like yeah. a bit of both really. Yeah, like the definition of the word, we'd have to like strictly look at the definition to say, okay, that's a good or a bad trait. Mostly it's going to be a helpful trait. Like you say, you're not, you're eternally not happy, right? You're not happy. Even if you win, 
Greg's going to the drawing board. What can we do better? And then, like you say, but you've got to manage it because especially if you're like a perfectionist on suspension setup, you, we started making, no, there's no end. So we started making a decision like after five or six runs, we need to cut this off because then we need to really focus on the speed, line choice, and then your strategy for qualifying and then race. And then after a certain point, you're not allowed to touch the bike. Uh, and a perfectionist might go down a rabbit hole and keep trying to tweak, tweak, tweak and not focus on you know speed on the track or something so great question i thought about it a lot and and I, so i've had more time to think about it new and that's why i say it's good but man you gotta you gotta manage it i got a question in on my side cancer on my dms um my 11 year old wants to be a pro dh racer it's all he talks about <laughs> cool <laughs> He is on. We like, we like you already. He is on flat pedals, but I see everyone is racing on cleats these days. So my question is, when should I put him onto cleats? So um, I'm going to give my little five cents, but then Andrew's deep dive here because he's like 15 year pro. So I'd say early is fine to move to cleats, but keep him riding both. So when you move him to cleats, don't throw away the platform pedals. And um, I think if he, if he becomes a rider that can ride cleats and platform, then uh, that's that's a well-rounded rider. That's brilliant. Saying, no, that's brilliant. I mean, in short, that's exactly how you have to. I would agree on the answer. I would say awesome, because that's what you need someone to be. That we talked about a perfectionist. We need you to be obsessed. If you're going to go to be a pro or successful in anything you, you have to have this weird level of obsession that's the, probably the word i was looking for earlier and that's cool um he's on flat pedals that's awesome that he's on flat pedals so young i would say the danger sometimes is even though yes the pros ride clips and and we can look at it on paper i did a deep dive with eddie on one of the bench racing ones and on paper there are not many guys that are performing on flats anymore that you know gone are the days of sam hill rennie Kavarik. You've got Connor Farron and I guess Brendan, who's not really focusing on racing all the time, right? It is possible, but the tracks and the sports evolving to the point that I think when you saw someone like Josh Bryceland, Stevie Smith switch to clips, they won World Cup title overall. There's something to be said for as a majority, it's going to be faster on most of the tracks if you can ride it well. Sam Hill never learned to ride it, he's never going to ride clips well. Um, so it's like Miles said, this is so good. He, he can ride flats. You learn most of your fundamentals from those pedals. When I started downhill, my dad and, you know, they introduced me to mountain bikes and they were on clips because that was what you rode mountain bikes with. It wasn't, no one really knew about flats. So I started on clips at a, at a young age. My first downhill race was on clips. However, we dirt jumped, we played on flats. And that's where I think this needs to carry on the conversation. Like you said, never get rid of the flats. Put them on his jump bike when he starts jumping. When he's going out for a fun ride, put the flats on. And then also get him very accustomed to cleats and get him used to clips because it'll probably be something he needs to ride when he's older. Yeah, for sure. Completely agree. Nice. Well, I remember speaking of, but speaking of both, if you start getting good at both, you start flip-flopping at races and that is a terrible idea. You need to make that decision need to make that decision before you get to a track if yeah, you, you can a lot of off season off season i remember you always put platforms on you like flat pedals riding flat pedals for three months just to um you know balance out the muscles a little bit and it's a bit of a better workout when you're riding with uh, flat pedals and just to like sharpen those skills and then a couple of weeks before racing i remember you always went back to cleats yeah, I was just, you know, something different, develop a different skill set. Um, you could be more aggressive, especially in training. So you'd, you'd learn different speed and different cornering. And then you take that repetition, that skill set, and, and then take it back to clips. So awesome question. Uh, thanks for reaching out. If you have any more questions, reach us to, out to us personally. We've been down this road. Last one from my side. Um from Jackie to Miles and Andrew, what's the riskiest move you've taken in a DH race and what track was it on and why was it risky? Very cool question, yeah. 
So I've had some time to uh, think about it. Um, mine definitely is, look at that, almost 20 years ago, 2003 Red Bull Taxco Mexico, that urban downhill race in Mexico. I think it was the second running of the event. Um, there was a there's a high-speed narrow passageway between houses. It was on super slick cobbles. And um, in the, I tried it a couple times in practice, but I'd always end up breaking. But in the race, I, I no-braked this one kink. Um, so super high-speed, super narrow, narrow passageway, buildings on either side of you. And it, it was in the shade most of the day, and the cobbles were incredibly slick. And uh, I remember in the race run, I was just like, I I'm going to, this is it. I'm, I'm taking this one. So I just, I, I didn't death grip, but I, I didn't squeeze the brakes and uh, drifted towards the wall, but held it. And uh, I just remembered thinking that would have left a scar. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I so, think, awesome. I think, or anything else on that? Sorry. No, I just, I just, I mean, it's, 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 that was 2003 and I remember it like yesterday and it's just one of those moments in a race run where it's kind of like carved in your memory. I just kind of will never forget it. It's, it's so vivid and uh, just such a cool memory. So great question. Yeah, that is an awesome memory and clearly it was risky and, and you had to think about a lot for that still to be ingrained in the memory. I mean, the short is my riskiest thing was going to a street race in Chile <laughs> and I, ended with stitches in my finger but that's was unintentionally and doing practice that I had that crash but one that sprung to mind is I just personally was a type of rider that that you know was you know I would weigh up my risks if if it looked like a risky thing that I could only get five out of ten times to me that it depends on how much time I was gaining it wasn't really worth the risk not really for my body, I guess, but more like, could I get the race run done clean? But one that came up once you sent me this question was in Norway, in Hafjell, an incredible track, and they had this natural road gap. And in the dry, you had to hit the, the section before as fast as possible, and you had to link these two berms just as clean as possible, no brakes, and then full commitment at this uh, kind of natural step-down road gap. And it was long and not everyone was doing it. It was that type of gap. There were bikes that were broken, wheels that were carcassed. But, you know, if you got the turns good in the section, you had the speed in the dry. And then classic. Was that, 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 that was 2014 Worlds were there in Norway. I, yeah. I went up there. Yeah. I, is that that? So, so just the listeners can understand. That's like 60K an hour or something. It's massive. It's yeah, it's really a natural, na it's under the lift. It's like halfway down or third of the way down. That was huge. Under the lift. Yeah. It, it, we could probably it's find really big. some okay, footage. Sorry, yeah. But it's, it's not that it was big. The risky part came. So classic downhill, we, some of us did it in the dry and, and then a lot more people got comfortable. So it, it was a line. And then classic World Cup downhill, it rained the night before or rained before the, I don't even know if practice was dry and the race was wet. But I'd never, I'd never jumped it in the wet in that type of rain, and I kind of made the decision at the top, like this thing is gonna be a lot of time to be gained, and I kind of heard that some riders were not doing it in the wet, and it was doable. It was just like more commitment, and you had to get it just so incredibly clean. So I would think riskiness was probably that one because I'd kind of made the decision: if I get the turns good, it's on. Um because I'd heard someone like Sam hadn't done it or someone, you know, hadn't done it in the wet. And I was like, well, if you can get this in the wet, you're going to make like three seconds here easily. So that's, I weigh, I weighed up that risk. Um, but I kind of had the opportunity to do the turn and the section before clean. So I, thinking back, I hope I had time to, you know, push out of it if I hadn't got it clean. But I remember that, that's like a fond memory for me was, you know, I took a risky maneuver because if I'd cased it, I probably would have ruined a wheel and the race would have been done or worse, flown over the catch berm and race would have been done and who knows what the body would have looked like. So that was so quite a cool memory thinking back. So you decided in the, like before the race started, you decided if you got the turns right, you're going to go for it. And then you did. Yeah. And then luckily the commitment was there before, but yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, 
depending on the track and how much time you can gain is, is how much risk, you know, these guys are willing to take. Well, Miles, we've beamed through an hour and five minutes, and I thought that was kind of a goal I had for us to maybe try keep it around an hour, depending on the questions and what sort of deep dives. But again, this episode or this series of episodes, we hope it's something you guys value or you have some fun with or you feel like getting a question answered because I get some awesome direct messages, some great feedback on this podcast that I am trying to grow. So I thank you guys for taking the time to write to me. And maybe there's something more you want to know about the sport or racing or who knows what it is. Send us send us a direct message. Thanks, Needles. Yeah, keep those uh, keep those questions coming. You can DM us on Instagram, Facebook, email us. Uh, I'm open to any questions. I will uh, give my best give my best answers. Yeah, thanks again, Miles. That was Miles Kelsey from Bike Network. So look him up on Instagram and on the World Wide Web. We think this will be called Miles or Needles and Miles World of MTB. Who knows if you've got a better name send us a text or whatever. But uh, yeah, thanks for all the support, you guys. If you feel like sharing with a friend, that'll be awesome. All the reviews, don't go unnoticed. I read all of those. Hit me up on Apple. I think you can do it on Spotify now as well. Um, So that would be cool. So yeah, thanks again, guys. This was Moving the Needle Podcast.